from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Oloranipo with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling from The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington this Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, April 24th. Today, the aircraft carrier that's raised existential questions in the military. And how to talk to kids about coronavirus. The USS Theodore Roosevelt is based in San Diego and is one of the most important ships the United States Navy has. Wherever it goes, eyeballs follow. It's considered a strategic asset. The United States builds its national security around. Dan Lamoth covers the Pentagon and the military for The Post. He's been reporting on the controversy around a coronavirus cluster with more than 800 cases. And it first started on an aircraft carrier, the USS Theodore Roosevelt. It deploys with about 4,800 sailors. It deploys with close to 100 fighter jets on it. And simply moving the ship is something that makes headlines. The Theodore Roosevelt Carrier Strike Group departs from San Diego today. They'll be setting off for the Indo-Pacific. When they send an aircraft carrier into the Persian Gulf. U.S. aircraft carrier and a bomber task force are being sent to areas closer to Iran. That creates attention in Iran. The United States has deployed an aircraft carrier to the South China into Sea. Into a place like the South China Sea. That grabs a lot of attention in, in that region. It's simply something that's considered so powerful and so important that when you take it offline, it creates a huge ripple effect. So take me back to early March. Like, where does this story begin and what is happening to the USS Theodore Roosevelt? So if you go back to early March, the USS Theodore Roosevelt is on a deployment in the Pacific. They had left from San Diego a couple months prior. And there's a decision that the highest levels of the Navy and, and quite possibly the Pentagon needed to make of whether or not to send members of, of this ship ashore in Vietnam. Were there people aboard the ship who were concerned about coronavirus, concerned about how it was spreading around the world, and concerned about whether it could be something that, that could affect them? I have heard that there were concerns raised about whether or not the port stop was a good idea. At the time, the assessment was that there was, I believe, 15 to 20 documented cases in Vietnam they were not in Da Nang, which is the part of Vietnam that the United States went in with the Theodore Roosevelt. At the senior levels of the Navy, they looked at it. They looked at the risk at the time and said, this port stop is important enough that we should do it anyway. Whether or not they would take that one back if they had the opportunity, I, I think, is another question. And so ultimately, it was decided that sailors would be allowed to basically dock in Vietnam and, and go out, interact with people there. W what happened after that? So several of them were ashore for multiple days, and they go back to sea. And within about 14, 15 days, they start having documented cases of coronavirus aboard. Okay, thank you all for being here today. I want to start off by announcing that three cases of COVID-19 have been identified among personnel currently deployed and underway on the USS Theodore Roosevelt. At first, it's only a handful of cases. These are our, our first three cases of COVID-19 on a ship that's, that is deployed. And they flew those first few patients off of the uh, aircraft carrier for treatment. 
Uh, those individuals have been quarantined and are being flown off the ship today. In fact, they may actually already be off the ship today. Uh, we've identified all those folks that they've had contact with, and we're quarantining them as well. But an aircraft carrier is a very large place, but it's also very congested. Sailors sleep three and four high in bunks. They have thousands of people that share common hallways, common cafeterias, common bathrooms. There's not a lot of private space. When you start talking about trying to isolate people, it's very difficult to do so. And especially if you have multiple cases, more or less impossible. And do they know where these cases originated from or who it was in Vietnam that they might have interacted with that transmitted coronavirus to them? There's sort of two schools of thought. One is that they picked it up somewhere in Vietnam. It's not exactly clear where. In retrospect, it appears there were a couple cases in one of the hotels that sailors were staying in. Another theory that the Navy has tried to push in the last week or so is that it actually didn't come from Vietnam, and that was sort of just coincidental timing. They have said it very well could have come onto the ship based on propeller planes that are allowed to land on the carrier. They bring in supplies. They'll bring in a handful of people at a time. No one's quite sure, and and the Navy is kind of floating and and acknowledging that there's multiple possibilities. So... Once it became clear that coronavirus was circulating on the ship and and that they were trying to do a quarantine of sorts, but clearly that is very difficult when you have a bunch of people who are in close quarters, who was in charge of handling this brewing crisis and what was their response to this? On the ship, we've heard that medical officers were quite concerned about the spread, quite concerned about having a clue how large the outbreak was. They did have some testing capability, but it was very limited. Off the ship, the Navy at higher levels was planning for this movement to Guam, acknowledged that they needed to do testing, they needed to do quarantining, but there was a lot of disagreement seemingly over how to go about that, how many people you could bring off the ship at one time. Once you get toward the end of March, you've got discussions going on between the aircraft carrier's captain, Captain Brett Crozier and several admirals at various levels in the Pacific. Crozier wanted to move as many people off as possible, as quickly as possible, and a very aggressive maneuver, leaving just a few hundred people aboard to take care of weapons, nuclear reactors, things you simply cannot leave alone, but still bring off in excess of 4,000 people or more, try to get a handle on who has it, try to get a handle on whether or not that they can clear these people as healthy again. He was not satisfied with the speed with which the Navy was moving. And on March 30th, he sends an email with a memo attached to it to a handful of admirals in the Pacific and copies several colleagues who are also Navy captains. The memo is laid out in about four pages. It references some of the outbreaks that have happened aboard um, cruise ships and how rapid those were and how dangerous those were. And basically rings an alarm saying, we, we need to get a handle on this. I'm not sure we do. Sailors don't need to die, you know, more or less pleading for a much more aggressive reaction. Within about a day, the memo that was attached to the email he sent leaked and initially was published in San Francisco Chronicle. And was there any response to this memo either before or after it became public? I cannot speak for what happened sort of in that window between when it was sent and when it was published. But what we do know is that when the Chronicle published that, senior levels of the Navy considered themselves blindsided by it. I think, I think the major difference uh, 
kind of the eye opener for us was the fact that he wanted to move at a greater speed to get people off the ship. Navy Secretary's office, the Chief of Naval Operations, who's the four star in charge of the Navy itself, they were not copied on the email and they said they didn't know it was coming. We are now moving people at speed uh, to get them off to get them off the ship. And so in order to act on the requirement, we have to clearly understand the requirement. And that's why I spoke to a potential comms breakdown uh, wherever it occurred. And we're not looking to shoot the messenger here. We want to get this right. Initially, the Navy went out. Uh, they, they spoke to reporters at the Pentagon. Hi, thank you. I, Admiral Gilday, I think this was you who said you think there was a communications breakdown with the TR crew. Is that correct? Uh, we haven't diagnosed that yet. I'm just, I'm just supposing if they had a requirement... And if we didn't know, if, if, if it wasn't acted upon, uh, you know, in the manner that the CO, that the CO wanted, you know, there was a potentially a breakdown in communications there at some point. And they sort of tried to make the case that they were doing the best they could. They were responding as quickly as they could. But at the same time, you could see it was a frustrated situation for them. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, A day later, I'm here today to inform you. Acting Navy Secretary Thomas Modley goes to the podium in the Pentagon. That today, at my direction, the commanding officer of the USS Theodore Roosevelt, Captain Brett Crozier, was relieved of command by a carrier strike group commander. And says that he is removing Captain Crozier as the commanding officer of the aircraft carrier. Says that he believes he acted in poor judgment and accuses him of sending a, a quote-unquote blast-out email that the Navy secretary says was sent to 20 or 30 people. I obtained that email uh, about a week after that. At that point, we learned that, that it was a much smaller group. It was three admirals with about seven captains copied. I don't know. I don't think I'll ever know uh, who leaked the information. What I will say, he sent it out pretty broadly, and in sending it out pretty broadly, he did not take care to ensure that it couldn't be leaked. And that's part of his responsibility, in my opinion. And was that really the rationale for for firing him? Because that seems like just, you know, whether he used the right protocol in sending an email. What about the contents of the email and the fact that he was fighting for more decisive action to try to potentially save lives of sailors and wasn't necessarily getting a, a response? That's a point that many have made, including many within the Navy, What senior Navy would tell you is that there are ways he could have done this. He could have sent this specifically to just a couple people within his chain of command. And if he wasn't satisfied with the response he was getting, he could have gone straight to the Navy secretary or the CNO, uh, who's the four star in charge of the Navy, and basically made the case directly to them. So what happened to Captain Crozier and, and what happened to the many sailors on this ship? Within about a day. As Captain Crozier is leaving his vessel for what could be the last time. Hundreds of the sailors who are left aboard meet in a relatively contained space, basically say, we're going to cheer this guy off. They're chanting Captain Crozier. I mean, very compelling video and at the same time, embarrassing video if you're, you know, senior officials within the Navy in light of the decision that had been made. It sort of made it clear where the crew stood on this issue. Another day or so go by, the Navy Secretary, the acting Navy Secretary, Thomas Modley, hops on a Gulfstream jet that the Navy owns, flies it out of Washington with a brief stop in Hawaii, uh, makes his way with Crozier's replacement all the way to Guam and takes to the loudspeaker. I was actually planning on being here last Tuesday. 
and insults the captain. It was my opinion that if he didn't think that information was to, was going to get out into the public in this information age that we live in, then he was a too naive or too stupid to be the commanding officer of a ship like this. What the? F- the alternate is that he did it on purpose. And that's a serious violation of the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which you are all familiar with. The reaction from the crew was very obvious, even within the audio recording that leaked nearly immediately. And it's now become a big controversy in Washington, D.C. and across the country about a martyr CO who wasn't getting the help he needed and therefore had to go through the chain of command, a chain of command which includes the media. And I'm going to tell you something, all of you, there is never a situation where you should consider the media a part of your chain of command. There is no, no situation where you go to the media because the media has an agenda. And the agenda that they have depends on which side of the political aisle they sit. And I'm sorry that's the way the country is now, but it's the truth. Modley had an immediate backlash. Whatever he had left of the room, he lost a lot of those people as well. Just in terms of the way he handled this, the fact that he would fly hours upon hours on taxpayer money, make a brief speech over the loudspeaker and leave. Initially, he gave a perfunctory apology, but the following morning, he called the Secretary of Defense and offered his resignation, and it was accepted. And what do we know about how many sailors from that ship are sick, have been sick, or have died? At this point, we're closing in on it, 12-15% that are positive in a crew of about 4,800. One sailor has died. Another sailor was in critical condition. And there's about seven or eight that are hospitalized with reasonably serious symptoms. About half, uh, more than 300, 350, are more or less asymptomatic. At this point, you've got about 4,000 sailors who are mostly in hotel rooms, and they're being held there under guard. And then what about Crozier and the fact that there has been a lot of criticism of of his removal from his job, especially considering how many sailors have gotten sick since then? How is the Navy dealing with the fact that he was removed from, from his position and also the way that he was removed? So there's a couple things going on. For one, Crozier himself has tested positive. So he is in isolation along with everybody else from his ship who tested positive. In addition to that, the Navy launched an investigation prior to even removing him where they wanted to get a handle on whether or not communication was was working here. A good portion of the people following this story, reporters, families, and others, are, are waiting for the Navy to announce the results. So what do you think this whole episode tells us about how the military is handling coronavirus? Modley has acknowledged that one of the reasons that he wanted to remove Crozier was sort of a complicating issue of not having a clear sense for what the president himself wanted. The administration has tried to make it clear that they've got a good handle on the coronavirus situation. There's a lot of compelling evidence and reasons to believe that's not the case. The Navy also has the complicating issue of wanting to project strength and look like it's business as usual in the Pacific at the same time that it went from being a handful of cases to dozens of cases to hundreds of cases. I I think one of the things that this really exposes, sort of the the ugly truths uh, and the ugly rifts that can emerge, is 
people don't always see the world the same way in terms of how important the health or safety of an individual service member is. Some people would put that as first. Some people look at it and say, you enlisted, you know that there are risks that go with that. We need you to do a job. That job can be dangerous. In this case, Crozier in his email and memo specifically said, we are not at war. Even that is something that has sort of been argued. Modley comes back and responds, we're not at war, but we're not at peace either. So we're kind of in this weird spot where it's, you know, what is the value of one service member getting a disease that the assumption would be most or all of them can recover from? And I think that was part of the Navy's calculus here. Dan Lamoth covers the Pentagon and the military for The Post. Last week, the Navy called for a 1,000 volunteers from the crew of the ship to submit swabs and blood tests to scientists. They're hoping that the sailors' samples can teach them about the transmission and possible immunity to COVID-19. And now, one more thing on parenting during a pandemic. Hi, Post Reports. My name's Alex. Hello, my name is Ray Stahl. My name's Sherry Peck. I'm the parent of a eight-year-old, a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a two-year-old in Denver, Colorado. I live in New Orleans. I have one child who's 10. I am a mother of three, under the age of three. I'm fortunate enough to be a stay-at-home mom. My kids really love the idea of homeschool because they've figured out that it basically just means we hang with mommy and daddy all day. Playground experience has been, yes, I know, has been destroyed and social distancing for babies and toddlers is, well, pretty much non-existent. There is no normal. Like, we're still trying to find that. Instead of trying to see it as a way of filling time, it's a way of having more time. Make sure they understand that they're loved and safe, and if they learn something, great. If not, figure it out. The new normal, really, I think, is being rewritten on a daily basis. So I guess waking up each day and saying, how, what are we going to do today to make today work? But how exactly are parents supposed to handle this? Matt Beal is the chief of child and adolescent psychiatry at Georgetown University Hospital, and he's the father of two kids. He started by talking about his own parenting experience so far. Pre-COVID, we were on autopilot, you know. We're truly sort of, you know, chatting for a few minutes before bed and then waking up in the morning and saying, what should the day look like? What does an hour-by-hour schedule kind of look like? And knowing full well that our schedule will be mutilated before lunch. We're not trying to get it right or get it perfect. We're just trying to do something that, that feels reasonably responsible and that also is flexible. Our kids, they are going to experience this through us. The, the way that we respond to the situation, the way that we manage ourselves and our emotions and our behaviors at home, that's what's going to predict how our kids navigate all this. We have to do the best we can to, to take care of ourselves first, making sure that we're consuming enough media and information to be informed, but not so much that we're just bombarded. We have to take care of ourselves physiologically, meaning to 
get enough sleep and to eat healthily and well, trying to move our bodies a bit, that really helps with anxiety and tension. Talking to other adults about the adult worries, but not in front of our kids, not with and to our kids, about feelings of being terrified or overwhelmed or confused. Those are totally normal, appropriate feelings to have right now, but they're not the feelings we need to be sharing in front of our kids or launching into in great emotional detail while our kids are sitting nearby. In general, when something difficult, stressful, overwhelming is going on, the best approach with kids is to be direct, honest, concise, and developmentally specific. So if the three, your three-year-old asks you, why aren't you going to work? The answer of, I'm going to work at home right now. It may totally satisfy your three-year-old, and you don't need to give more information about that. You don't need to be talking about a, a, a virus or a pandemic or that we all have to stay in our houses until they ask those questions. We don't have to force information, but we also don't have to be stingy about it. We need to just be responsive to the questions that our kids ask us. And for an eight-year-old, it might be, are we going to go back to school this year? And for a, a 12-year-old, that might be, are we and our family members going to catch this virus? And are we, how sick are we going to get? And for a 15-year-old, it might be, what's going to happen to our society with this happening? Are you going to lose your job? Like Those are very different kinds of questions that kids might have. I think you just have to calibrate based on who your kid is and your relationship with them. Will it change the way we parent? I mean, I th that seems to me like one of the compelling things about this as a force of good is that this there's been a lot of forced time together. I think everybody's getting to know their kids better in ways that are both beautiful and probably confounding for, for, for people because it, parenting is challenging and kids are complicated. But that ends up being a very personal question of like, how would you like this to change the way you parent? And can that be something that you make part of today? Matt Beal is a clinical psychiatrist at Georgetown University Hospital. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Maggie Penman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Jordan Marie Smith, Rennie Spernovsky, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. 